You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of this day, this opportunity to gather together, that you promise as we gather together in your name that you're in the midst of us. And so we do pray that you'd be in the midst of us now and um, earnestly, Lord, that uh, in the end, you would be the one we would hear from because you um, are our life and you are our salvation. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So uh, we've been... um, we're going to reflect some this morning. I have uh, a couple of a couple of scriptures for us to look at this morning. But one of the things I've been thinking about lately, and I, and I feel that I heard someone say this. Uh, maybe like y'all, you hear so many things and you can't remember um, who said it. Uh, so I think I heard someone say this. If, if y'all think it's terrible, then uh, then I heard someone say this. If y'all like it, I came up with this. Okay, so just sort of you know preface it. I'll preface it in, in that way, but uh, talking about uh, Christianity, and I'm you know, curious your thoughts, you're welcome to agree or disagree, but, it, but that, um, that Christianity is not, uh, it's not a religion of morality. Uh, that, that Christianity is not a religion of morality, and, and I, uh, I wouldn't call it immoral, um, and, uh, and I wouldn't call it amoral, but, but not, a, not a religion of morality. What do you, what do you think, folks? Um, that's good. Uh, that's good. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, our, our world, it, yeah. Certain. Yeah. Certainly. I mean, you know, yeah. The you know the so the morals, laws, etc. Yeah. I mean, the, the Judeo-Christian. Um, you know, even though obviously a lot of our founding fathers were deists, um, so um, I wouldn't uh, want them necessarily to catechize um, uh, my family. But yeah, I mean, certainly. Uh, certainly, and yeah, you, certainly our faith. I mean, one would hope, for goodness sakes, that it that it shapes the way that we, the way that we live our lives, and the way that we interact with with one another. Yeah, uh, to 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 be sure. And I think that's one of the time. I think that can be an honest frustration sometimes with Christianity, um, is folks wanting it to impact their life. Um, you know, not simply to be a head knowledge, but something which gets into life and relationships also. Uh, a longing for the power of it. Yeah, David. Great point. So our only Christianity is only focused on Jesus Christ and crucified and raised. Right. Your sermon, you know, back it goes to the tower, which he see he sees them flooding over the, his nation and totally yeah. destroying it. Right. So our only hope is in as he says, Aren't you the God from everlasting? That's our hope is yes. when we enter into everlasting. Because in the meantime, uh, yeah, absolutely. No, I think it's a great point. Every, regardless of Christian, non-Christian, everyone has their morality, um, their their rule book, their playbook that they uh, that they play by. Um, you know, this is this is okay. This is not okay. Um, everyone has that of some sort or another. Well, let me tell you why I, why I say that, um, and to some degree I say it because it's unattainable. I mean, if you look at the precedent which Jesus sets. It's not an attainable precedent. You think about the Beatitudes. Uh, if you go to the Beatitudes, go to, go to Matthew 5. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Um, if it's, if it's uh, 
if it's a faith that is attainable by keeping a morality or practice, um, we're we're dead in the water. Um, <laughs> I mean, no need to lace up the shoes. Um, we're, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father uh, is is perfect. That that's that's an unattainable that's an unattainable goal. We we can't reach. One of the things that's distinct about Christianity. We we can't reach God's standard without God taking us there, uh, and that's that's one of the things that's that's different. A lot of a lot of presentations of faith and morality lay out steps by which, if we follow these steps, then we will then we'll progress, and if we follow these steps, then we will then we will attain. Um, and these are the these are the means by which and the steps by which we attain whatever it is: righteousness, um, holiness, uh, acceptable. Uh, being acceptable, what, what, whatever it might be. But uh, the reality of Christianity is that it's something that we can't get there without uh, God getting us there. And so what, I, what I'm uh, getting to is that uh, the, the belief that within the Bible, uh, we have a religion of salvation. It's uh, what the Bible reveals is a God who saves. Uh, as, as Jesus comes into the world, uh, not to make bad people good, but to make dead people alive. Um, that, that without the intervention of God, and that's that's a um, that's a rather offensive statement to the culture uh, around us um, to say that, that we're that we're that we're dead um, without the intervention of God, spiritually speaking. Obviously, folks are folks are are, are walking around, but it's it's something uh, about God's power from start to finish. One of the things invites you to think about along with me are what is revealed in the Bible about the salvation of God and, and how it is accomplished. And Christians, obviously, not only in the past, but now have debated in various approaches uh, about how it's attained. And some of the more famous, uh, there's a name Pelagius, um, which you may or may not, which you may or may not remember um, Pelagius. But, but basically what, what Pelagius um, said is that um, uh, if, we, if we read the Bible, and I'm a and may I say, I'm a big proponent of reading the Bible. Um, let me encourage you to, to, to do that. Um, to, do not be conformed anymore to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, uh, Paul writes. So um, certainly encourage you uh, to read the Bible. But um, Pelagius would say, basically, if, if we read the Bible and we work hard um, to do what it says, then we have the capacity for moral willing. That if, that if we read the Bible and if we pay attention, if we take it seriously, then we have within ourselves the capacity, we have within ourselves the moral will um, to bring change to our lives. Um, so again, read it, pay attention to it, take it seriously. Uh, there's, a, there's a blueprint uh, which is laid out in the Bible. There's a blueprint in the laws uh, and there's a blueprint in the Bible. Uh, and again, if we if we read it, if we take it seriously, we have the ability within ourselves to bring change, to bring about the necessary change um, in our lives. And let me ask you, uh, I'm not trying to put you on the spot. Do you agree with that? I hope for your sake you don't. Um, and you, again, you're welcome to say, um, Craig, you're crazy. Uh, Craig, uh, you're, um, you're, you're wrong. But uh, is change long for? Absolutely. Uh, does, does, does God accomplish change in our lives? Without a doubt. Um, I mean, that's, um, if, if he didn't, that would be a really, be really sad and really, and, and really hopeless. But Augustine, and not just Pelagius, not just Augustine, Augustine, to the contrary, um, 
St. Augustine, Augustine, depending on how you're feeling, um, you know, erred, aired, um, depending on how you like to, uh, how you like to play that. Um, but he argued that the core, <laughs> thank you, Bill. Can you tell him you'll call him back, Bill, or you could, yeah, thanks, thanks. Um, So, so Augustine, uh, Augustine would contend that the uh, uh, the core engine of human nature is our heart, um, <laughs> is our heart and our and our desires. Uh, that that ultimately that, that God changes our hearts through the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, that and, and I don't you know I don't deny to some degree in life uh, developing certain practices can be helpful, um, uh, but when it when it comes to when it comes to the change of our hearts, when it comes to the change of our lives, when it ultimately comes to the change of our minds, it's accomplished by grace, uh, and it's accomplished by mercy. Uh, uh, Almighty God, whose power is revealed chiefly in showing mercy and pity. Um, it's, it's those things. It's the mercy of God. It's the grace of God. Um, it's the intervention of God, which brings change to our lives. It's, it's the It's the proactive work of God rather than uh, drumming up enough personal will. Um, to bring change. And so I'm going to read to you from Ephesians. Um, uh, this is kind of tough because it's kind of one of those, uh, I'm trying to uh, shorten it. I kind of just want to read to you Ephesians because um, it's because it's it's so it's so good. Uh, and as Paul writes to the Ephesians, he, he says this. Um, well, he he talks he he talks about Thanksgiving uh, and, and he talks about Prayer, and he and he talks about the the work of God um, in our lives and the riches of His glorious inheritance uh, in the saints, um, and His immeasurable greatness of His power toward us um, who believe. Um, but then he says this, and uh, Ephesians two one now is where I am. He says, "And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked." Uh, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, and the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So he says, you were dead um, in your sins um, and your trespasses. And it, it's, it's rather um, unsettling as he describes us uh, as, as children of wrath like the rest of of, of mankind. Um, I did a wedding years ago. It's funny. Um, uh, the bride and the groom didn't think it was very funny. Um, but so this was uh, one of the fellows. He was a, uh, he had been a cadet at the Citadel and I hadn't seen him probably in a decade. And he tracked me down um, here in Birmingham and asked if I would uh, officiate uh, his wedding. And I said, oh gosh, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm honored. I'd love to. Uh, and so it was, it was back in Charleston, went back in Charleston, but it wasn't at Summerall Chapel at the Citadel was at a venue, and um, uh, his brother-in-law was going to do the reading, and the reading was from Colossians, right? The Colossians reading, and y'all, y'all remember the Colossians wedding reading, right? God, I thought you were Christ- I thought y'all were Christians. Uh, no, if you if you forget it, that's fair. First Corinthians thirteen, you've got that. You, exactly, you got you got that one. But if you remember, it's often read, and it's and it's and it's lovely. Uh, the the Colossians put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, humility, um, kindness, uh, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. 
And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. And it's, it's a lovely, uh, and it's, and it's you know, entirely um, appropriate. And so the, the brother-in-law was going to read the lesson. And I said, hey, do you need me to mark this? Do you need, I've got my Bible here. Would you like, no, 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 I got it, I got it. I'm like, you sure? I got it. And so he gets up there. He gets up there to read. If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And they were kind of, you know, that, that's not quite, but okay, we're, we're just kind of listening. Uh, set your mind uh, on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Okay, uh, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Again, it's kind of like, all right, they're a little confused. But then he goes on and says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, <laughs> passion, even desire and covetous, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Uh, and they're, and they're, 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 they're looking at me. I was like, listen up. Uh, no, they're looking at me, and I'm just like, he, he, started at the, he started at the beginning. And it was one of those, and maybe you've done this before, we, uh, one time or another. You know, rather than just like, oh, my bad, he just kept plowing. Um, so there was no, there was, there was no, um, there was no stopping him. And these you too uh, once walked uh, when you were living in them. So this is kind of like Paul saying the same thing uh, as he's saying um, you were dead in your sins and your trespasses. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self with its being renewed and knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones. Uh, and then he finally, then he, he finally got to it at the, um, <laughs> at the reception. You know, folks are standing up giving toasts. So one of the folks said, you know, you had me at circumcision. Uh, so it's like, it just kind of was like the running uh, the, the whole time. It was just kind of like, although it was kind of a good moment. It was kind of like, it was one of those, uh, it was the full council. Um, it wasn't just part of the story. It was the full thing. So Paul starts and he says, you know, we were, we were dead. We we're dead in our sins and our, in our trespasses, uh, in our own power. We, we, we were dead. And we've, we've looked at uh, some of the more lovely ones, like for instance, Luke 15, we talked about a few weeks ago. And in Luke 15, you have stories of three lost things, lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. And all of those there, you know, it sounds lovely because they're stories, but, but Jesus talks about that which is lost being found, that which is dead uh, becoming alive. I mean, it's, again, it's a, it's a lovelier presentation uh, in, in the telling of a story, but the, but the punchline um, is, is the same. That which is cut off is reconciled. That which is lost is found. That which is dead um, is, is made alive. And so Paul, Paul said this again, uh, it reveals that uh, in some way, and some have said it's basically it's the bad news before the good news. That we're people in need of salvation. That we need more than just a tune-up. Um, we we need to be rescued. But of course, the amazing news that we'll go on to see is that we don't rescue ourselves. That that God is the rescuer. We don't save ourselves. Um, that that God is the one who brings about salvation through His work, rather rather than ours. Why it's why it's referred to as good news. But then he, uh, so, you know, children of wrath, but then he says, but, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. 
By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. It's, it's by grace you've been saved. That's the profoundly um, good news. And it's God's desire to reveal his immeasurable greatness uh, and goodness and kindness. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand um, that we should walk in them. And you can see how um, profound this good news is, but also um, how Paul certainly would have rubbed wrong uh, religious leaders of his day. Um, uh, that's, That's a wonderfully, delightfully confrontational message. But Paul goes on to talk about uh, the division between Jew and Greek, circumcised uh, and uncircumcised. And one of the things he goes on and he talks about is how God has broken down, and this is uh, in verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing um, the hostility. You may uh, remember, and and some of you uh, know more about this than I, but in the temple there are various courts, uh, and within the various courts there are various walls as well. You know, in the middle you had the Holy of Holies, uh, the place where God dwelt, the, uh, the the priest, the high priest, would go in once a year on the Day of Atonement to make sacrifices. Um, you know uh, that was God dwelt in the Holy of Holies, and then you had the court uh, of the Jewish men, and then you had the court of the Jewish women, and then out uh, beyond that, the, the the court of the Gentiles. So I mean, it was very tiered, very uh, very stepped, very clear, and uh, on the walls um, separating were written and. Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew, basically warnings that if you're you're not, it's um. So my middle uh, my middle child uh, when she was little, she hates when I tell this story. So let me tell it because um, she's not here. But she um, when she was younger, um, when she, someone asked her what she wanted um, to be, um, and she, gosh, she's maybe five or six at this time, uh, she said authorized personnel because, um, you know, she saw the sign authorized personnel, and so she wanted to see what was behind that door. She wanted to be authorized personnel. And basically, in the temple, you had authorized personnel. Like if, and, it, and it said, if you, if you go beyond the wall, uh, you'll be killed. And if, you know, if, if you're not a Jewish male and you go beyond this wall, if you're not a Jew and you go beyond this wall, uh, your death is on you. Um, you're responsible for it. And so when Paul talks about breaking down the dividing wall of hostility. He's not just talking about a grudge. <laughs> He's not just talking about annoyance. I mean, this was, this was steeped. This is dramatic. Uh, this, uh, the Bible revealing to us our faith being a faith of salvation, of something which is accomplished for us, something won for us, that, that, faith, that faith, even faith itself is a gift um, that's given by God um, to us. Uh, there's a there's a fellow by the name of Thomas Bilney. Uh, some of you Anglican nerds may recognize that name, Thomas Bilney. Any, anybody recognize um, 
well, that's that's because the cool kids um, are in this room. And uh, uh, so Thomas Bilney was one of the. Um, he was kind of a. He was apparently a, a, a little guy. Uh, his nickname was Little Bilney, um, and uh, he was uh, a, a quiet guy. Supposedly, you know, sort of always had uh, health challenges, but he was one of the first martyrs of the English Reformation, um, Bill, Bilney was, and he had a tremendous impact on uh, a number of people, um, in, including Cranmer, uh, who had a significant role in the English Reformation. Bilney, again, in some ways, um, kind of a, a, a small person who had a great impact, and again, he was one of the, he was one of the, one of the first martyrs of the English Reformation. But, but during his day and during his time, and again, it's not just that time, the world and religion still does it today. It's just a matter of the manifestation it takes. But uh, Bilney uh, had a real issue in that he felt this separation between himself and God. Uh, he felt that he was, um, he felt that he was uh, you know, a sinful person, that he wasn't a righteous person, and felt this you know, tremendous gap between him and God and had this fear of had this fear of judgment and I forget exactly the C.S. Lewis quote but it's along the lines of um, basically as, as we grow in our faith um, we realize um, how bad we are um, and how much rather than we, we have a greater understanding of, of our need for God's of our need for God's mercy uh, and grace um, in our lives and also the fact that we're, we're recipients of it because of his nature and his character, not, not, not ours. But Bilney struggled because also it was once or twice a year, I think it might have been once a year, they received communion. And the, the belief was that if you, uh, if you took it improperly, you may be well taking it to your damnation. So that's, Tonga, that's, that's a stressful test right there um, as, you're, as you're approaching this. And so Bilney trying to come using the various means available to feel that he could be right in his relationship with God. And so he purchased masses and indulgences, you know, during that time. That's one of the things you did. You had to pay, pay a priest to say masses for you and um, say, you know, particular prayers for you to try to purchase your forgiveness and your salvation. Um, he went on pilgrimages, um, you know, to try to sort of uh, increase in his, uh, in his, in his holiness. Uh, he he fasted. He went through all these basically mechanical means to try to um, to try to accomplish his security and his salvation uh, to to no avail. Um, he, he didn't feel any better. He just felt poorer um, after 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 all of that. And it you know it was it was, it was compounded. Uh, and then we're told that he purchased uh, a copy of Erasmus's translation of the New Testament, which would have been very taboo would have been contraband uh, during that time. And uh, as he began to read through it, uh, as he began to read through it, particularly as he came to the, the pastoral epistles, where, where Paul speaks to 1 Timothy, uh, where, where Paul speaks to the mercy of God, where Paul speaks to the reality of, of himself uh, basically as the chief of sinners, um, uh, he described himself as having this grace uh, and this mercy and this hope and this uh, bomb flow over him. And I want to I read to you now, and, and thinking about this, reflecting on this, uh, I came across just a little, in a, it's a little brief portion I'm going to read to you from a, a brief word that uh, John O'Linebaugh wrote. And John, if y'all remember, 
was a wonderful gifted teacher, was here, I don't know, about a month ago or so, and taught for a few. He came, he'd been at uh, Cambridge as, as a professor there for not quite 10 years, um, and now is the uh, Anglican chair um, at uh, Beeson Divinity School. So we hope to have him uh, come back. He's got to make the rounds. We hope to have him come back and, and teach some more for us uh, in the future. Um, but he writes this, in 1519, Thomas Bilney sat in a small Cambridge college with a book in his hands. It had been two years since a German monk named Martin Luther was said to have nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg. Hammer blows that were later remembered as the start of the Reformation and were rumored to have shaken the earth, producing aftershocks that caused the church's unity to crumble, nations to war, freedom to be fought for and found, and theological debates to spill both ink and blood. This fraught history would come to Bilney's England. Luther's books were burned in Cambridge in 1520. The Church of England broke with Rome, and Bilney was killed for his Protestant sympathies under Henry VIII. But in 1519, all this was an unknown future that only later came to be called the Reformation. Bilney was just reading. The book was both old and new. It was a New Testament, but this was a fresh Latin translation by the Dutch humanist Erasmus. Bilney got a copy because he wanted to savor the eloquence of the famous Erasmus's Latin. He was, however, reading with an open wound. That's kind of a key point there. He's reading uh, with an open wound, uh, and, and we may say that's, uh, that's the human condition, isn't it? Uh, uh, despite how we, uh, how we dress it up, and that's, that, that's the need for grace. Uh, that's the need for God's grace and mercy and God's um, intervention because um, all of us, in, in one way or another, uh, have that open wound in our lives. He was, however, reading with an open wound. My heart was wounded by the awareness of my sins almost to the point of desperation. Like the titular character in George Eliot's short novel, Janet's Repentance, Bilney was tired, was sick of that barren exhortation, do right, keep a clear conscience, and God will reward you. And now he's talking about George Eliot's Janet's Repentance. Uh, as Janet lamented... Uh, in the face of a history of broken resolutions, a life of sorrow and weakness and wickedness, these are feeble words. Janet's question was Bilney's silent cry. Is there any comfort, any hope? And then he goes back as Bilney read the words, made contact with his wound. And this is now quoting uh, from Bilney. I chanced upon this sentence from St. Paul in 1 Timothy 1.15. It is a true saying and worthy of all men to be embraced that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief and principal. This one sentence through God's instruction did so gladden my heart that immediately I felt a marvelous inner peace, so much so that my bruised bones leapt for joy. Luther's own experience, as he remembered it in 1545, a year before his death, was remarkably similar. He was reading Romans and couldn't get past a phrase in chapter 1, the righteousness of God. As Luther recalls, I've been taught to understand these words to mean that, right, that righteousness by which God is just and punishes unrighteous sinners. 
But Luther, like Bilney and Janet, felt that he was a sinner, and so he hated this righteous God who punishes sinners. Let's pause there a moment, right? Um, if, if God is a righteous God who punishes sinners, um, how likely are you to turn to that God? I remember a guy, it was a, a Christian um, <laughs> it was a Christian conference one time, and he was um, uh, talking uh, about sort of training his dog and getting his dog to, to come to him. And, um, you know, if the dog would come to him, he'd, you know, bad dog, bad dog. It, shockingly, the dog was not very good about coming to him. He's like, I, I'm sure it was exactly, he's like, I just started carrying cheeseburgers in my pocket. Um, and so I'd tell him to come, and he'd run right over. Like, who's a good, who's a good boy? You know, here you go. Here's, uh, and God's not out there giving treats, um, but, uh, but what we hear is, is, a, is a God who seeks and comes and desires to. That was, that was the profound word which, uh, which was drawn from the Bible, a God who desires to save, uh, a God who desires uh, to forgive as we pray, a God who's more ready to forgive than we are um, to ask or to receive. Uh, the desire, the nature, and the character of God who comes to seek uh, and to save Jesus. When I, when I am lifted up, I will draw the world to myself, the Son of Man, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that all that believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For the Son of Man came into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Uh, this, this incredible word of God who came that we might be uh, saved, that we might be rescued, that we might be reconciled. I, uh, I came, um, uh, I did not come for the righteous, uh, for the well, but for the sick. Um, is is what Jesus is what Jesus will say, and so Luther was grappling with the fact that this understanding of the righteousness of God as is punishing sinners um, that he found it made him hate God um, rather than love God, and again that's that's not hard to figure out. He was desperate, however, so he kept pounding on Paul in this passage until at last, God being merciful, I began to understand the righteousness of God as that by which a person lives by the gift of God, that by which the merciful God justifies us through faith. Put in more everyday terms, what God sees and says when he looks at us is not determined by our pedigree or our performance, by our biology or biography, you might say. It is determined by God's love and grace, by the one who loved me and gave himself for me, Galatians 2.20. What God sees and says to us in his son is this, God so loved the world, he gave his son. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus came into the world um, to save sinners. Um, so you had Bilney um, and, and, and Luther and, and the others um, engaging the scriptures, having the scriptures engage them and, and, and finding... Uh, this nature and this character of God, um, not one to hate, uh, but one by whom we might be found, um, who comes that he might redeem us, that he might rescue us. And I, I think that's one of the chief fears, um, is, it, is it not? Um, what, what often gets in the way, what, um, what, what our enemy um, um, often does is uh, to present God in a way which is uh, which is inaccurate um, to his nature and his character is, is God holy to be um, to be sure is the fear of the Lord something 
um, that is uh, encouraged uh, in the scriptures with, with, without a doubt. But we see this nature and this character of God that our faith is one uh, revealed in the Bible as, uh, as a religion of salvation. Uh, and that salvation is accomplished um, by God for us. Let me pause there just a second. Any questions or comments? Uh, not that I'm expecting any, but pausing there just a moment. I want to share just really, uh, real, real, yeah, very, very, um, very briefly. And thinking about some of the different biblical examples of this. I mean, certainly thinking about the New Testament, and but also the Old as well, and the numerous. I mean, there's you know, there's numerous opportunities to express it. But uh, I, I mentioned a quote from this guy James Edwards um, on on Gideon, and um, I meant to bring the book down with me, but I, uh, but but I forgot. But he. But he talks about the, the story of, of Gideon. And do you all remember um, that story when Gideon, um, uh, yeah, there's that saying, I was this old when I figured, I, I was embarrassed to say how the Gideon Bibles and the hotels, uh, it was um, dramatically late into life that I knew who Gideon was. Um, so, and, 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 found, uh, and found out. But if, uh, so here in Judges, in Judges 6 and following, um, we hear about the story of Gideon, and if you remember, uh, the, the issue, uh, among other things, um, you know, the people of Israel were, were always dealing with the power that was coming in to oppress them. Uh, and at this time, it was the Midianites. The Midianites were the bully on the block at this particular time. And uh, they, they, they came, they were uh, Bedouins, and they would come with you know, just thousands upon thousands of camels and people and sweep in and like locusts devour everything um, in, in their path uh, and leave them, uh, leave the people with, with nothing. Um, and uh, I never saw, I imagine it's the, um, maybe it's the premise, remember that animated movie back in the day, Ants uh, with the Grasshoppers? And uh, I confess I didn't see it, but um, that's, my life is less um, in that respect, but my guess is that was based on this. So, so Gideon is um, threshing wheat in a in a wine press, um, and uh, uh, you know you don't you don't th- you, you thresh wheat out in the field so you can throw it up and the chaff is blown away and the the wheat is retained. You know, so, threshing wheat in a wine press is a, is a terrible idea, and the only reason one would thresh wheat in a wine press is if they were hiding. And as if they were worried about, you know, the uh, the bully on the block coming and taking away what little they had, and so Gideon is threshing his wheat in the wine press, um, and uh, and the angel of the Lord appears to him. And do you remember what his greeting is to to Gideon? Yeah, exactly. It's it's one of the funnier lines uh, in the Bible. Hail, mighty man of valor! The Lord is with you. Or <laughs> the word, the words given to Gideon, you know, be like, you know, you uh, you find me like huddled up, and the, you know, uh, and, I, and I'm scared, you know, because I see that person uh, coming. Uh, you know, that parishioner, uh, and you know, one of my colleagues coming in. Oh, hail, mighty man of valor! Um, the Lord is with you. Uh, is what is what and so i mean it's 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 rightly funny but but what but what do we see in that we see the graciousness of god we see a god responding um to uh, not that as and of course christianity is yeah it's not the absence of suffering and challenge and trial and hardship and all that is in this world you'll have trouble 
Um, it's not the absence of that, but it's, but it's God coming in the midst of that. And rather than a word of rebuke, rather than a word of rebuke, it's a gracious word. Uh, it's, a, it's a saving word. It's a winning word. It's a reconciling um, word. Hail, mighty man of valor, um, the, Lord, um, the, Lord is, the Lord is with you. Uh, and, and Gideon is called. Gideon is called to deliver his people. And again, because of time, uh, Judges 6 and following, I, I encourage you to go and, and, and to read it and uh, you see how it plays out. But, uh, but, but Gideon says, you know, I, I believe you, but, but wait, um, wait just a minute and, and sort of uh, puts, uh, puts the messenger through various tests. Like, I really believe you and I really trust you, but um, so I'm going to put out this fleece tonight and if I come in tomorrow and the fleece is wet but everything else around it is dry then I know that I can trust you and God is gracious says okay go ahead and do it and shows up the fleece is wet everything else is dry and says all right look don't don't be annoyed but let's do this one more time uh, and this time if the fleece is dry and everything else is wet then I'll know then I'll know that you're for real and so once again God's like Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll do this again. We'll flip it um, in the opposite. And he comes in and he, and he, and he finds that, um, and, and it's true. And he's given this direction to tear down the uh, altars to Baal and the Asherah um, poles. Uh, and, and all of this um, goes on. And then uh, he is told to drive out the people. And he starts off, um, he starts off with, with, quite, with quite the army. But then there's an interesting thing, um, and this is in Gideon 7.2. The Lord said to Gideon, uh, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, uh, and 10,000 remained. And so... He keeps whittling the people down more and more and more and more until he gets to just 300, uh, just 300 people to drive out um, the Midianites. And, and, and the reason is, um, the reason behind that is that they might know that it's through God's power, not their own. Not that God's anxious for the credit, um, but he realizes what the people are like. Um, and in fact, uh, I'm going to read this to you now. This is James Edwards, and he's describing this whole, the, the people of Israel, which is basically describing human nature. The crisis, unfortunately, is nothing new, but simply another episode in a pattern of sorry episodes that befell Israel from about 12,000 to 1,000 B.C. This pattern is painfully clear in the book of Judges, which recounts our story. First, God delivers Israel from a crisis, and deliverance is followed by a season of prosperity. Prosperity leads not to gratitude and obedience, however, but to complacency and complacency to forgetfulness and forgetfulness to sin. In anger, God hands Israel over to its enemies. From the pain of oppression, Israel repents and cries out for help. God knows the cry and sends a helper, a judge, according to the Hebrew, or as we would say today, a freedom fighter. Victory ushers in a period of prosperity and the pattern repeats itself. The problem is not the Midianites. It is Israel's forgetfulness of God. Gideon is reminded of a need he was not aware he had. The call to remember in a time of crisis can feel like cold comfort. Before Israel can hope, Israel must remember. In order to hear God's word in the present, Israel must remember his saving acts 
and faithfulness in the past. And so as the whole saga, the, the, the victory is given. But again, what is, what is given to them is the awareness that the saving act is God's. Uh, and that's why our religion is one of good news, because the saving act is God's. The saving act is not yours and mine. Um, the saving act is God's. Uh, and you and I are wonderfully swept up by the grace and the mercy and the sacrifice uh, of God into a security uh, and, in, and into a peace greater than anything we could accomplish by the mustering up of our will uh, and by our good intentions. Uh, we are received and reconciled um, through that work. And let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do sweep us up um, into your grace and into the salvation through the work of Jesus, your Son, and his cross and his resurrection. Uh, place that uh, assurance ever before us, uh, that we might know that it is by faith uh, and it is by your grace that we are saved, that we may not boast, that we might have a security which cannot be taken away, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.